0: Welcome, friends, to my lovely, crazy life. I'm your host, Amanda Preston. I'm a mom of eight talking about adoption, foster care, and special needs. Join me each week as we dive into the messy, fill up your cup, and refresh your soul. Hi, and welcome to today's episode, Foster Parents Take Strike. Today, we're going to talk about what that means. Hang on. Daniel and I first signed up to become foster parents about 14 years ago. We were just a couple of naive but passionate newlyweds parenting our newly adopted infant son. We had hopes and dreams of becoming long-term foster parents, starting off as a safe baby home, which we did, and eventually moving towards teenagers as our own children grew. We hoped to have maybe six to eight children through adoption and fostering and had mapped out our life ahead supporting vulnerable children. Our first few years on the scene actually were relatively smooth. And by smooth, you might think I'm referring to without incident. But in reality, that is merely how the first 10 years of fostering compares to our most recent few years. What might have felt like a huge storm back then does not rival to the hurricane we now call our life. Yet even back then, we encountered many of the issues that I'm going to discuss today. I'm not going to be talking about our current struggles as a foster family, but I would like to focus on some of the important pieces we've picked up along the way and what I've learned as both a foster parent raising children, but also as a charity director supporting fellow foster and adoptive families, and as a social worker from inside the system. Did you know that nearly 50% of all foster parents are quitting within their first year and 65% of them within the first five years? Home for Every Child even did a recent survey, and we found out that 70% of foster parents have considered quitting. That is not sustainable. With retention stats like that, which result in more moves for children, it also results in fewer experienced homes and a greater strain on the system attempting to recruit new foster parents. This is not okay. So two things that I've kind of walked away from over the years and have learned is that one social workers have no sweet clue. And two, foster parents need to take strike. Now for number one about social workers, I mean that in as kind of way as possible. I am not implying that social workers are mean or intentionally trying to cause foster parents harm, but instead they are just unaware of just how hard fostering is, the many different facets it involves, and they're often not taught anything about foster parents in their formal education. During my social work degree, for example, we were taught that foster parents were child kidnappers. What? Yeah, that was my response. Now, before anyone gets up in arms over number two, let me be very clear. I do not mean a physical strike. Children in care need safe and loving homes to reside in when their families face unexpected challenges. So what I am referring to, however, is a metaphorical strike of sorts, a strike for others to really hear us listen to our pleas, and hopefully, incite change in social workers, professionals, the system, and the general public. So today, I'm going to talk about a few facts that we want you to know about foster parents that will help facilitate a greater understanding, respect, and hopefully, collaboration in the child welfare system. The first thing I'm going to talk about is the B word. And by B word, I mean babysitters. Foster parents want you to know, and one of the most common complaints I hear from fellow foster parents, is that social workers treat us as nothing more than a glorified babysitter. Now, Definition.com describes a babysitter as someone who takes charge of a child while the parent is temporarily away. The key word in that definition is temporarily. This word denotes for a short period in time, as in generally accepted when referring to babysitters. Fostering, however, is so much more than that. While there is certainly short-term foster care, the majority of foster care is more long-term and not exclusively temporary. The average stay of a child in foster care is one year. Last I checked, babysitters didn't stay that long. And if you dig a bit deeper into the role of a babysitter, we see that babysitting is while the parent is away. In foster care, We are the functional parents. If a child gets a fever, we can't phone the parents to come home early. If we get sick, we can't cancel our babysitting arrangements. We don't show up, feed the child, put them to bed, and then watch a show until the parents get home. Instead, we are raising that child the same way we would raise our own child. We provide supervision, of course, but we also provide a home. Many foster parents buy larger houses, build additions, squish other children together in rooms, all in an effort to make room to care for a child through foster care. We buy and prepare food, we take them to medical appointments, we have their friends over, take them to sleepovers, plan surprise birthday parties, teach them life lessons, and love them as our own children. The only real difference between a foster parent and a biological parent is our biology. For all other intents and purposes though, foster parents are raising these children for an undetermined amount of time as their own children. Sometimes the children are able to reunify and return home to their parents, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes we might be raising these children right into their adulthood as their primary caregiver, and I say caregiver with a grain of salt, and I'll talk a little bit about that afterwards. But the level of attachment between a foster parent and a foster child runs so much deeper than the babysitting relationship, and it must be appreciated through that lens, and I'll be talking a little bit more about attachment later. Caregiver is another word that is often thrown around, but it means the same thing as babysitter. So, for all the social workers out there and professionals, I highly recommend you start using the term foster parent versus caregiver as it just denotes what our role actually is. The next thing we want you to know is that we are fighting for the best interest of the child. The best interest of the child is thrown around a lot in the child welfare system and by a lot of well meaning individuals. The truth is, we're all fighting for that. While social workers might not understand foster parents, they do truly have the best interest of children at heart, and they go about it in the best way they know how. BioFamily also strives for this same goal to the best of their abilities, as do foster parents. Even professionals in the children's lives are fighting for this, from child development workers to pediatricians to counselors to therapists. We're all striving for this mutual goal of keeping children happy, healthy, thriving, and safe. For some reason, however, I've witnessed and heard the majority of these parties involved ignored. Instead of working as a team, decisions are made based primarily on politically correct guidelines rather than looking at the child as an individual. If we report a concerning action or behavior during a visit, social workers are quick to defend biological family as if we are tattling on them, despite us being trained to report any concerns to social workers. If we bring up safety concerns, social workers often jump to the conclusion that we are anti-reunification. If we advocate for support services such as counseling or therapy, we are ignored, denied, or thrown up against lengthy delays. If we advocate for permanency, we are often branded as child kidnappers with no one else taking any consideration of that child's attachment. We are the eyes and ears of these children, yet we're often silenced throughout the life of that child, losing our ability to help be their voice. The truth is, in many cases, a foster child enters the system as an infant or young child and lives with their foster family for years. Now, this isn't all. I'm talking about some of the cases. More often than not, they know their foster parents as mom and dad and know no other way of life. Even in cases where a child comes into care later on in life or in their teen years and maintains visitation with their bio family, the foster family still spends the majority of the time with that child. Now call me crazy, but the person raising and caring a child likely knows the most about them. I know if my child can handle staying up until 8pm on a school night for a visit, a lot more than a social worker who sees them for 30 minutes once every three months. Now granted there are many cases where children come into care for shorter periods of time and have extensive histories with their biofamily, then often the biofamily may still know the child best. But the person who knows the child least, however is the social worker. Yet the social worker is the one who's entrusted with the legal responsibility and decision-making power of that child during the most challenging time of their life. Of course, we have to trust their formal education and training in allowing them to make the very best decision they can for each child. But how can they accomplish this without knowing the individual needs of that specific child? Social workers need to consult with not only the foster parents, but teachers, specialists, and others involved in that child's case. But remember, the person raising the child is likely the one to know the child best. We are with these children when they wake up, throughout their day, when they go to bed, and through the night. This must be acknowledged in order to truly seek the best interest of the child. A social worker cannot possibly work towards the best interest of the child based purely on ideals. They must take each individual child and their own unique needs into consideration. Foster parents also want to be part of the team. Collaboration in the child welfare system is key to truly supporting the needs of a child. So much so that I have recently finished a book called Foster Parent Collaboration, which you can stay tuned for, that talks about the importance of it and goes into great detail about many of the things we're talking about today. In my social work program, we were taught this ad nauseum, and we were provided with a hierarchy of who is ultimately in charge, which is the child social worker, and all the other professionals involved that you would collaborate with. Surprisingly, foster parents were conveniently left out of all literature. A little bit of respect, however, goes a long way. Including foster parents in family meetings is a simple way to include us and have our voices heard. I've witnessed many social workers who are great at this, but I've also witnessed many that are not. Even allowing a foster parent to come for a short period at the beginning of a child's meeting or care plan is beneficial. It allows an opportunity for the foster parent to provide updated information on how that child is doing, as well as comfort the bio family that their children are being loved and cared for. I can't even imagine how scary it would be if my children were removed and put into some unknown stranger's home. I would want to know that they were loved and being cared for because there's so many scary myths out there of what foster families are like. Having that opportunity to see them in that setting and know how their kids are doing and how much they're being cared for can really help support the biological family. The foster parent is the only one who will know how the child is sleeping, eating, doing academically, behaviorally, how visits are affecting them once they get home, and what professionals are involved in their life and more. They know if that child has started pulling out hair or peeing the bed, maybe if symptoms are starting to present itself for some sort of special need like FASD or ADHD. The foster parent knows if the child is scared of dogs or has a hypersensitivity to loud noises. Many of these things can develop after they've come into foster care due to the trauma that they experience. All of these facts are vital in planning for the child, knowing if visits are going well for the child if they can manage loud public events versus quiet visits in a home. I can't imagine someone leaving out a team member with this sort of crucial information in any other facet of life. Yet with fostering, we are. This is such a simple fix and will help everyone advocate for the children's needs when we are included in their planning. The next thing foster parents want you to know is that foster parents have a life too. Foster parents have signed up to care for children in need, but they often have more than just one specific child in their home. Many times foster parents have multiple foster children from different families, have their own biological or adopted children, and sometimes they work outside of their home and they have their own life kids nap, many are in after school activities, multiple family members have doctor and dentist appointments, and as all other people in the world, we desire downtime, time to clean the house, and time to enjoy something as simple as taking a walk. Since foster care is not a 9-to-5 job and is 24-7, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, we have to build all of that into our schedule, Social workers routinely, and I mean routinely, inform foster parents of appointments and visits without more than a question of what works for the foster parent. On top of that, they often do it with a day or even hour's notice. This is 100% unacceptable. Foster parents are not slaves. They're also not subordinates, and they are not a social worker's employee to boss around at any given moment. The respectful and polite way to approach foster parents is to have open communication with ample notice. My advice would be to always provide foster parents with at least a week's notice in advance before attempting to book something. Now, unless it is a life or death situation or some sort of extreme circumstance, it is just not okay to be attempting any sooner than that. Furthermore, Don't demand something, but ask what works. Foster parents want to make it work, and they usually end up maneuvering around their entire life in an attempt to make it so, but often there's no reason for a foster family to need to be put through so much turmoil when a simple conversation consulting availability would suffice. Visits are another area of contention between social workers and foster parents, and unfortunately the solution is not always as easy as one might hope. It's actually one of the number one reasons many foster parents decide to quit. Often, foster parents are placed with children whose bio family lives far away or the child welfare office is located in a neighboring town. With foster parents having to pick up kids from school, appointments, and more, it's often impossible to drive an hour or more to a visit, return home, and then get back in time for the two-hour visit to end. Sitting in their car for two hours is also unreasonable, especially when they often have other children with them. Weather might make it hard to go to a park during that time and to find some sort of activity to keep busy for two hours. Many times the children are young or have special needs and cannot handle sitting in a vehicle or certain activities for two to four hours a day. Many regions do have drivers in place to help drive either both ways or one way to cut back on the many logistical nightmares that accompany visits. But for those regions where it's not possible, it would make a world of difference to approach the problem with creative solutions and a kind and understanding perspective. Perhaps the bio family is able to take the bus and meet in the central location, or the agency can use a meeting place in the foster parent's hometown. It's important to remember that this is a requirement of foster parents. We do have to drive for visits, but it doesn't mean it has to be done in a disrespectful way, in a demanding way, or in a way that requires us to turn our lives upside down. Working together is the best way to move forward when dealing with visits. And when a foster parent is busy and asks for a different day or time, please, please respond kindly. Don't assume it's an act of sabotage. And remember that we are doing the best we can. And also remember that we are volunteers. While foster parents do get paid, it is a maintenance payment to cover the needs of the children and is not a wage and should not be considered a job. The next thing we want you to know is that children are not resilient. Many professionals are quick to throw around the term resilient when it comes to children experiencing trauma, neglect, abuse, and multiple transitions. So many professionals in the industry think that a child will bounce back and recover from the many horrendous atrocities that they might have faced. Because of this belief, many decisions are made under the assumption that a child will be okay. Current research shows, however, that children are not as resilient as we once thought, and multiple foster and adoptive parents can attest to that. Children who have undergone trauma show high rates of behavioral and physical challenges similar to children with special needs. Trauma can include, but is not limited to, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, and verbal, repeated moves or homes, removal from a birth family or foster family, even at birth, living in an institution, such as a group home or orphanage, and neglect, which is the lack of basic needs met. Due to these experiences, children are often left unable to navigate their world with the way a neurotypical child might. Perhaps a teenager now requires the same care an infant would, such as bottles or rocking, or a five-year-old might require constant affirmation that food will always be present. Some children might require constant reminders that they are loved, they might not be able to handle the holidays, and they might struggle with sensory needs such as loud noises, water, large groups, or more. The effects can be long-term and require extensive therapy, parental skill, and time to recover from. Many children never fully recover and are left with diagnoses such as reactive attachment disorder, institutional autism, or PTSD. And it's interesting to note that the PTSD kids in foster care experience is actually the same of people who go through war, such as war veterans, and children of war from third world countries. And the rates of children who experience it in foster care are far above those in both of those other two examples. Many social workers, however, are quick to move a child from one home to another, stating that children are resilient and therefore they will be fine. Often they're placed back in a biofamily that has not yet worked through some of their challenges, again, citing the fact that children are resilient. If they come back into care, they'll be fine. I've even seen social workers remove children from the only parents they've ever known in a foster home where they have lived for years, stating that if a child has attached to those foster parents, they can attach to someone else. Now, while this may be true, It does affect them long-term and can result in permanent challenges such as PTSD. Unfortunately, many behaviors associated with trauma present themselves similar to a child misbehaving. This results in new caregivers or parents being unable to manage the kids and children find themselves bouncing from home to home. If we can prevent that from happening in the very beginning, their outcome is so much more optimistic. Further training on attachment and trauma is so badly needed so that this sort of perspective doesn't remain in place. Great harm is occurring to these children because of this misguided viewpoint. Children are left in an unending cycle, unable to parent their own children in the future. Another important topic for people to know about is grief, loss, and mental health, and I'm not referring to the children. The grief and loss of foster parents is something that is rarely acknowledged or talked about. The truth, however, is, is that fostering is one of the most unnatural forms of love out there. Being a foster parent means you're bringing in an unknown child, one you likely have no previous connection with, and are working on creating a loving bond and attachment with that child while supporting them through the biggest crisis of their life. It is then falling in love with that child and loving them as your own. They become a part of your family. The difference between your bio and adoptive children and your foster children is likely nothing fostering is then losing that child as they get moved to another foster home, get returned to biological family, or get placed for adoption with a new family. Often the children are returning to dangerous situations where their future safety and well-being is unknown. There are a few key factors to take away from that process. One, foster parents are continually forming new attachments and bonds with unknown children. Two, foster parents are navigating life with a child in crisis. Three, foster parents are repeatedly losing a child that they love. Four, foster parents are experiencing zero closure five foster parents experience no support through this grief and loss period and six and final foster parents are often labeled as not coping if they vocalize these struggles now we don't want to compare to what happens when a child dies but there is closure in that sort of grief and loss system or when we lose a loved one but with fostering there's often no communication once the kids leave we have no idea how they're doing The the lack of closure can be devastating. In foster care, closure is often impossible. As much as we hope it isn't the norm, it's actually very common for children who are returned home to continue to experience abuse or neglect and return back into the foster care system. This can happen repeatedly. Often these kids are unable to return to their previous foster home as they do fill up quickly due to shortages. And because they've now experienced even more trauma, their behaviors begin to escalate. They likely get moved from home to home, often finding themselves in group homes when their behaviors become too much to manage. Foster parents are left to worry about these chain reactions for a child they love deeply as their own, agonizing over their hearts, their future, and more. Foster parents are forced to say goodbye to a child, never to see or hear from them again, with exceptions. They're left wondering if a child thinks that they've been abandoned by the very people that they've called mom and dad. The guilt is. Immense. More care and and acknowledgement needs to be shown for just how hard this really is for foster parents, and that brushing us off during these hard times only pushes foster parents further away from the system and their longevity in it. The pain of the process results in many foster parents experiencing depression secondary trauma, and even PTSD. Since any sign of a foster parent struggling is viewed negatively or as a sign we are not coping, foster parents are left to suffer in silence, often unable to even seek supports. But the fact is, this is just how fostering works. You get a child, you love them, you lose them. It's a repeated system of broken attachment. So it's inevitable that a foster parent is going to experience some sort of mental health challenge due to the very nature of fostering. So to then judge and say that they're not coping because of this reality is absolutely insane. So we must come alongside foster parents and recognize that this sort of resulting challenge does not mean that they're not coping or does not mean that they are no longer able to foster. It just means that they need supports in place. Counseling is one of the most common things that can get foster parents through it and a really great support system. So help put those in place. So many agencies can offer funding for counseling. There can be support groups created. The the opportunities are endless, but they need to be provided and they need to be provided from a loving and caring and non-judgmental place. The next one, and this is a biggie, foster parents deserve respect. One of the easiest and quickest ways to improve relationships with foster parents is to simply show respect. As evidenced by what we've talked about so far, it's very clear that fostering is hard. The one thing that foster parents want from other professionals is to be respected, but instead, foster parents are usually treated like bottom-of-the-barrel trash, often used as scapegoats, and ignored in every way possible. Emails and phone calls go unanswered, requests ignored, vital information kept secret, and social worker responsibilities passed off to foster parents, and concerns we do bring forward are left overlooked. Now, in all fairness, I can say after working the other side as a social worker that social workers are overworked, they're underfunded, and do not have enough staff to get everything done. But the lack of respect goes so much further than staffing, myself and others have been told heartless comments, including, you signed up for this, you only do it for the money, you're just the caregiver. Now, if a birth mom began suffering from postpartum depression, or a parent of two children complained of the challenges of parenting life, as most moms do, would the automatic response be, you signed up for this? Never. There is a complete lack of understanding for just how much we go through simply because we made the choice to foster in the first place. But how much we invest into these children and how much value we can bring into the table needs to be respected. In a recent survey by Home for Every Child, they found that more than 70% of foster parents have a university degree and more than 8% have a graduate degree. Now, a graduate degree and university degree are not requirements for respect in any way, but in any other professional setting, it would go a lot further than where it does in the foster care system. I had a situation once where I accompanied a child I had since birth who we were in the adoption process with to a five-year-old assessment at our local children's hospital. Now, the assessment included comprehensive questions about the child's behavior. The social worker for the child had been sick, so instead a duty worker came who had never met the child before. The case manager walked out from the children's hospital and said, Only the social worker was allowed in the meeting. The social worker, who was lovely, politely tried to explain that she had no information on the child and that I should be present. The manager, however, refused and took only the social worker into the meeting. The feelings I felt at that assessment still bother me today. I felt ignored, undervalued, and disrespected. As the parent who had been raising that child their entire life, and intended to raise that child for the rest of their life, we were in the adoption process, I was completely devalued as my role in that child's life. And even people who aren't in the adoption process, but are taking care of that child for significant amounts of time, have valuable information that needs to be included. Sure enough, a few minutes later, they called me into the meeting because the assessment clearly couldn't continue without my input. It was too late, though. The lack of respect had already occurred. Despite me being that child's mother in always but one, I was viewed as nothing more than the caregiver, with nothing to offer. Respect is vital in supporting foster parents, allowing them to feel validated and maintaining a positive environment for foster parents and other professionals to work alongside in. In many ways, respect is the very foundation of moving forward and truly understanding the life of a foster parent. So hopefully some of these things have given some clear ideas as to what foster parents need and what we really hope for in moving forward. By increasing our ability to collaborate with foster parents and work alongside them as a team, we are going to increase retention rates, their longevity in the foster care system, and recruitment rates. The happier foster parents are, the more they're going to be able to recruit others to join. We're also going to reduce the disruptions of children in care. Every time a foster parent quits, a child has to be moved to a new home. If we can keep foster parents long term, then these disruptions don't have to happen. So overall, The collaboration of foster parents is vital in systemic change for foster families, and we really hope that this can help bring light to some of the small changes you can make. Thanks so much for tuning into our episode this week, and please stay tuned for some specific social work tracks that dive deeper into all of the things we talked about today, and watch for my new book that's going to talk about this as well. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. Be sure to tune in next week for more exciting episodes and learn more on adoption, foster care, and special needs. And be sure to check us out on social media, Instagram, my lovely crazy life AP, and our website, MyLovelyCrazyLife.com. And please share and help us spread the word of our new podcast. Thanks again, and we look forward to chatting with you next week.